So now we're, uh, we're heading up towards Christmas, and uh, last week I started just a little bit on the theme. There's so much to say, you know, when the angel came and said to Mary and made the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and she said, you will conceive and uh, be pregnant, you will give birth to a child, and you to give him the name Jesus in another place, for he shall save his people from his sins. But it says, the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he shall be great. And he shall be called the Son of God, amongst other things. And then he went on with other descriptions. Now, there is a million things that you could preach about Christmas, about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, seen of angels, you know, preached in the nations, taken up into glory. And so there's a lot that we can preach about it. There's so many angles we can come on. There's so many types. There's so many shadows. There's so much symbolism. There's so much that we could preach. Now, last week, um, I just wanted to give you a little bit of the bigger picture concerning Christmas, and then maybe today, just bringing it from a different angle, but with an application that's relevant and pertinent to our lives. And so I want to just talk a little bit this morning about the day God's hand turned. The day God's hand turned. Everybody say, the day God's hand turned. And, uh, um, and that was very important and very crucial for us. And uh, God is often described in anthropomorphic terms, that is, in other words, physical terms. But I personally believe that He has the shape of us because we're made in His image and likeness, though He is spirit. And uh, Moses in, in Exodus saw the form of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, He said, You've never seen God, you've never even seen His form. So God has a form, whatever that looks like. But to me, it looks like, I think, like a human being. That's what I think, you know. So when God breathed his spirit into Adam, you know, I think it was Adam-shaped. <laughs> and so his spirit filled his... Maybe I'm being oversimplistic, but it just helps me. Maybe it'll help you. And so it's really important for us to understand and know that the salvation that we have was long time prepared. And last week I talked about, you know, the fact that our lives, our spiritual lives were prepared. I spoke about the fact that heaven was prepared. I spoke about the fact that earth was prepared. I spoke about the fact that the seed was prepared. Even the body of Christ was prepared. Because he said it in Hebrews chapter 10, you've prepared a body for me. And then, of course, he was taken up into glory, but there was a body prepared so that there is a, a Christ on earth. Is that okay? So God wasn't taken by surprise. And right the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, when he promised and prophesied, you know, the woman will have a seed and he will crush your head to Satan. We saw that about how God then just became the whole purpose of preparation. I started looking and doing a study this week, a little bit of a study on why did it take so long? Why couldn't God have sent Jesus sooner? Why didn't he send Jesus sooner? God is a God of meticulous, complete, in-depth preparation. So Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, in the fullness of time. So we can look at it very limited. We could have said, well, straight after Adam and Eve sinned, that would, that would have been a good time to send Jesus. But we don't see it from God's perspective. Just the simple thing of preparing Roman infrastructure and Greek language and culture, just a simple thing like that, to facilitate the spread of the gospel and the communication and certain levels of understanding. Just, just that. If we just looked at that, we would see that God in his wisdom prepared it all, and it was in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. And so this morning, I just want to 
touch on a few things. And um, how many of you know that sometimes we talk with our hands? Somebody once said to me, if your hands were cut off, you wouldn't be able to talk. So I'm just proving to you that that's not true. So I can talk to you without the use of my hands. It's very difficult because everything in me wants to, you know, but we talk with our hands. It's quite interesting sometimes when you watch people giving directions over the phone, you know. Yeah, then you go down the road, you know, and then you'll see a stop street and then you turn right. And uh, once Bev was saying, I was giving someone directions, and Bev said, you know, they can't see you, hey. But it just helps me, you know, talk with my hands. So how many of you are hand talkers? Yeah, there is some communication that you get with hands, especially in traffic, but it's maybe not good communication. Some people talk a lot with their hands. And, uh, you know, very often people who are fighters, you know, they let the hands do the talking. But there's a very real aspect in which God spoke with his hands. And, um, you know, God, God is an amazing God. I know that in Genesis chapter 1, I know that it says in the beginning God created and he said, let there be, let there be, let there be. But there's other symbolism. There's other typologies. There's other shadows that help us to understand God's intimate involvement in his creation. Because God just speaking might imply, even though it's true, might imply some distance, some remoteness, some lack of intimacy in his creation. But you know, when he formed man in the ground, the Bible says formed. You can go and look it up. But the word formed implies that God used his hands. And so when he formed Adam, when he formed man, God got involved. Let's put it this way. God got his hands dirty because he made him from the dust of the earth. And so he formed man and then breathed into him the breath of life. And that implies a, a level of proximity to this clay man, this red earth man that he's breathed into, where possibly there was a little bit of mouth to mouth, where God breathed his spirit into the highest, the apex of his creation when he created Adam. Amen. And so it was an intimate action. Psalms chapter 8, verses 3 and 6, or the 8th Psalm says, when I consider Thy heavens, the work of thy fingers. Fingers are attached to a hand. But whenever there's fingers, because David said, you've trained my fingers for war. In other words, it reveals a level of skill and artistic ability of design. So there was thought in it. So, you know, when David says, when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? Because in its beauty, in its grandeur, in its extremity, you know, David understanding, and all this is for us. What is man that thou visitest him? And what is man that thou madest him to have dominion? Listen to this in verse 6. He says, dominion over the works of thy hands. And thou hast put all things under his feet. So even the created order. I know that Genesis has spoke, but yet David says in Psalms, that there was a creative, by the Spirit, God was active in creation, setting everything into place. And there's many verses, and I'm sure that they come up into your mind now. But David says this in Psalm 92, verses 4 and 5, For thou, Lord, has made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the work of thy hands. Yeah. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. 
No, it goes further than that. And I want you to understand when David speaks, when Jeremiah speaks, when other men of God speak, there's a personal application to us. And so David said in Psalm 139 verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that awesome? So he's still making us. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Yeah, but that was David. What about Jeremiah when God called Jeremiah as a prophet and he said, before I formed thee in the belly, I formed you. The word form. In other words, Jeremiah was the handiwork of God. Is that right? So I want you to just imagine yourself now and just say, he did a good job on me. Just say, I'm fashioned in his likeness. I'm formed in his image. Amen? So he says, before I formed thee, in the belly I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee as a prophet unto the nation. Awesome. Now, come on, church. He didn't just form physically Jeremiah. He formed him emotionally, spiritually, anyway, gifted him to be exactly what he was called to be. Isn't that right? So you are not some random twinkle in somebody's eye. You are formed by God wonderfully, fearfully made. So, and in verse 5, he says, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. David continues and he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Because it tells me that what David's experience is, that not only do I know that I'm created and I'm formed, But you didn't do the act and then depart. You've laid your hand on me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. A couple of years ago, I preached about the tracks of God, the footsteps of God. And just how all of us can look back in our lives with hindsight and we can see the footsteps of God. In other words, the pathway of God, the process of God, God's involvement in our lives, even prior to salvation, bringing us through and where we can clearly discern the fact that he was involved in our lives and his hand was upon our lives. And David says, you know, when I think about my life, a little shepherd boy, and how you called me, and he's meditating on that, and he goes, you've laid your hand on me, such knowledge. It's too wonderful for me. So Psalm 143, verse 5, David says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the works of thy hands. Psalm 138, verse 8, the Lord will perfect that. So, you know, when we begin to think about God's work in our lives and what he's done, you know, sometimes we can get a little bit frustrated. Sometimes we can get a little bit impatient. Sometimes we can wonder what is happening. But here the psalmist says this, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. In other words, J.D. spoke about maturity in our giving this morning. In other words, he'll bring to completion, he'll mature He'll bring to fulfillment the thing that he's begun in me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thy own hands. David was talking about himself. Come on, everybody say myself. All right, say God will perfect that which concerns me. He will not forsake me the work of his hands. Amen. So God has been intimately involved in your life. You are the work of his hands. Ah. Isn't that awesome? 
I remember my pastor, whenever he did dedication, he had a big ball. I want you to know that there's a BC and AD. And as far as Prestic is concerned, there was a BC. So before Prestic days, it was called Plastocene. But it didn't stick like Prestic does. Anyway, so you would, yeah, sticky stuff. But he had a big ball of Plastocene. And you know, you could use window putty as well. And whenever he did a dedication, he would take the ball of putty and he would press it and mold it. And he would always come up with this, you know, and he would say, it doesn't matter how you try and shape the child, the child will always have your fingerprints all over it because with the molding. And listen, God's hand upon your life, he's indelibly marked you. You carry the fingerprints, the DNA of God. So I want to just open it up into a little bit of a bigger picture. Because not only did God create the physical universe, not only did God create us as human beings, and more particularly, not only did he create us as Christians. Because remember, we are recreated. So he created us. But God created nations. God created seasons. God created circumstances. God created events. God created the nation of Israel. He formed them as a person, even though a nation. And there's many verses in it, but in Hosea chapter 11, and from verse 1, Hosea speaking to the people of God, and he uses the term Ephraim, and, um, you know, a favored child. He said, they forget, I was the one that taught Ephraim how to walk. He says, I took Ephraim by the arms, and the pictures of this little toddler child that is just coming into the walking stage. He said, I've been down. And the implication by the context, if you read it, is he took them by the hands and he said, I taught Ephraim how to walk. Yeah. And the involvement of God in our lives, yeah. it's true of you. And he has and he will continue to teach you how to walk. You, Amen. And the implication there is he taught them how to walk, bringing them out of Egypt into the land of promise. He says, you forget. You forget, it was me. I led you with cords, he says, of human kindness. And so the formation of Israel is really, really powerful. In so much so that in Isaiah 43 verse 21, he says, This people is a people I have formed for myself, that they may show forth my praise. So you were formed for him, that you might show forth his praise. But all the events. So let me just open it out to a little, to a bigger picture. It's prophetic. Isaiah, when he writes, he was the prophet to Judah, the nation of Judah, and to the city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was a prophet in the exile. But Isaiah was prophesying right before Judah's exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's why Isaiah 6 verse 1, so significant. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, train of his robe, filled the temple. And basically, Uzziah was the last of the good kings. I mean, it went into great decline from then. But Isaiah prophesied so many things. You will never understand correctly the book of Revelation if you do not study the book of Isaiah. You won't understand a lot of things if you don't study the book of Isaiah. But listen to what Isaiah says, 43 verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee 
by name, thou art mine. And so all of the events, all of the places. So listen to Isaiah 40 verse 12. Talking about God. Because when you read the book of Isaiah, you will see there are times when God is saying, I'm against you and there's judgment. And there's other times him saying, but you can come back. And he speaks about judgment and suffering, but then he talks about a remnant rescued and great glory in the future. But listen to this. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And yes, correctly so, we often preach these verses to describe the immensity of God that you could collect every drop of water on the face of the earth, whether it's dams, rivers, or oceans, and it would be just contained in the hollow of God's hand. That's how big God is. You know, waters that are so deep that they would drown Everest. God captures them in his hand. I don't know if you've ever done it, put water in your hand and poured it out. It's not a lot. You know, so in relation to my body, that amount is small. So all the waters of the earth in relation to the size of God, you know, Isaiah is saying, you know, God is a huge God. But he's not necessarily talking about that. It's prophetic language. Who meted out heaven with the span of his hand. I think that's like that there. And comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. So he took all the dust of the earth and he can just put it in a little measure. You know, and it's relative to God. It's so small. He weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. But I don't know, prophetically, it's not time to go into it all because we are trying to end earlier than normal. You go through the Bible and you will see how many incidents with great revelation and great significance happened on mountains. I mean, even Song of Solomon says, my beloved is coming and he's running over the hills, leaping, coming over the hills. What about the mountains? Isaiah 2, I believe it is, where it says, you will establish Zion as the chief amongst all mountains. So mountains become something else. So Mount Zion became symbolic of the people of God, as did Jerusalem. And then as we go through the New Testament, we see that now we are the Mount Zion. We are the heavenly city, Jerusalem. Jesus said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, just like you can't hide a light. You are the light of the world. So there's prophetic significance. So from the time of Abraham on Mount Moriah, which incidentally is Calvary, where he was called by God to sacrifice his son, but God said to him, you don't have to do it, stopped him with the angel, and on the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. What shall be seen? The provision, because Abraham prophesied, and he said, God himself will provide the ram. And there was the ram caught in the thickets, you know, all prophetic and symbolic of Jesus. But here was Abraham, the father of the faith, ready to give and to sacrifice his son. Where did it happen? On a mountain. It was prophesying. And so he named him Jehovah Jireh. And centuries later, you know, on Golgotha, Jesus is given. God fulfilled the prophetic statement, and he gave his son. So on the mountain of the Lord, it was seen, Jesus being crucified. And so that was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But Moses met God on a mountain. We know all of that. Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel the people, and call them back to God. It's really interesting that those two mountains are significant because God in his mercy added the prophets to the law. 
Because the law was calling the people, but they didn't always obey the law, so he added the prophets. That's why in the New Testament it's referred to as the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Do, do not the law and the prophets. And then even the Psalms. You know, it's written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And when Jesus met them on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the law and the prophets. So there was Moses. There was Elijah on a mountain. It's interesting that Jerusalem was situated on a mountain. I've already mentioned that. Beautiful for situation. It tells us the transfiguration happened on a mountain. Yeah. If we go over to the book of Revelations and not making it futuristic, I don't see it as that, is that it talks about Armageddon. I like what um, Mama Charlotte Cronk said, or son John Cronk used to say. He said, yeah, no, I believe in Armageddon. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> but uh, Armageddon is a place... It's a mountain because if you look at Armageddon, it's not a mountain, the, the physical place of God. Made Armageddon is more of a, a valley, yeah. the valley of Megiddo. So they've got that very wrong. But I like what Prophet Kruber said. It's a place where kings would meet to measure their strength. And, of course, it becomes symbolic of the mountain on which Jesus was crucified, where the king of glory met the king of darkness. Strength was measured. And Colossians tells us he made an open show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I need to move because I'm enjoying it. Amen. And so there was the mountain of Armageddon. And of course, Revelation 21, we will see the new Jerusalem like a mountain coming down from God, like a bride prepared. And so, in other words, there's a new mount in town. <laughs> there's a new hill. The chief of the mountains, a Jerusalem or Zion has become the chief of the mountains. Now, it's the church. It's his kingdom. Is that okay? Zion, the new Jerusalem, is us. And so all those mountains, in other words, all by the hand of God, God prepared physically the mountains, but God prepared the experiences on the mountains. Yeah. God prepared every encounter. Every one of them was exact timing, exact timing, exact timing. They were in the right place, the right time by the hand of God to meet with God, to bring in everything that God had so graciously prepared us. And when Jesus was born as a babe, the implications were huge. A lot of people see a baby and the Son of God, but I mean, just last week and this week, can you see the significance? Now when the baby is born. So, but, but let's just continue. So God prepared all of those things. And um, the amazing thing is that all the way through, God had his hand on people. Isaiah 65, we begin to see a turn in the terminology and the term and the language of God's hand from Isaiah 65. So I'll give you the verses now. So God always had his hand out. He was leading them. He says, I brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Yeah. With a strong arm, I delivered you. His hands were held out to them. He'd taken them by the hand like Ephraim. He was leading them by the hands. And in Isaiah 65, and uh, did I say Isaiah 65? Verses 1 to 3, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Because in the process of Isaiah prophesying, he starts to prophesy that there's another people coming. That's the Gentiles. That's us. I revealed myself to the, those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. And in other words, they responded. 
But Israel, now he says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good, after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. So what Isaiah is saying, come on, Israel, God is holding his hands out to you all day, saying, come to me. Look, I was found by these people who didn't even call. They didn't even, you know, I said, here I am. And they said, God, we want you. But to you, my people, the ones that I formed, I delivered with a strong arm, the ones that I taught to walk, here I am, I'm holding out my hands, but you don't want to. And so his hand has been extended to them for centuries. So anyway, let's continue. It's amazing that in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, Moses already sang this song, but was a prophecy against Israel, and he prophesied their demise and their captivity and their end. But Babylon, the exile, was just the beginning of the end. It wasn't the end, the end. It's the beginning of the end. And that's why Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 was 70 times 7, because it was the incredible patience and mercy of God He's going, your sins have reached full. You're going into captivity. And I have forgiven you 70 times 7, or I'm in the process of forgiving you 70 times 7. That's why when Peter said, how many times should we forgive? Jesus said, until 70 times 7. That's what God has done with you guys, with this nation, 70 times 7. And so coming with the birth of Jesus, there was the last ditch attempt of God holding out his hand. And offering them salvation through Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, in Luke chapter 4, I think it's Luke 4, Luke 5, basically it says, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law came from all over, from every town. They were all gathered together. And it says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Who? Not the sick. The religiously sick. Because then they sat there when he said, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive? They missed it because Jesus came to heal their cripple-mindedness, their religiosity. The power of the Lord was present to heal them, the teachers of the law, and they rejected Jesus. So he had been holding out his hand. And, uh, you know, he said, I've spread out my hands to you all day. But right up into the Babylonian exile, he was still giving them an opportunity. He still wanted to bring out the remnant. He was still protecting the seed line that would give birth to Christ. And in Isaiah 45 verse 1, Isaiah prophesies the Lord's anointed, Cyrus, a foreign king. But he says God will anoint him. Now listen to what it says here, Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Was Cyrus a believer? No. But God anointed him for a purpose. He says, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden. Now, I want you to know this is hundreds of years before King Cyrus was even born. God says, I'm going to raise up a man, and I'm going to hold his hand, and he's going to do what I want him to do for the sake of my people. Now, let me just pause. Let's just see here right now. Just see We've probably been through the worst here in living, in our living memory anyway, in the history, you know, since, since whenever. Been through a, a tough year. It's been a pressured year. But I want to tell you, and I've been saying this all along, 
that God has raised up people and will continue to raise up people. God will turn situations and turn circumstances. God has got even unsaved people. God has got even wicked people held by the hand to fulfill his purposes. And he says, they're my anointed because they will do what is necessary for you. Is that okay? That's a really good place to say, (laughs) hallelujah, amen. And he says, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of that king to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. In other words, the gates to go back. Later on in verse 12 and 13, he said, I've made the heaven, I've created man upon it, even my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all the hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up, who? Cyrus. I've raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price, nor for reward, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. What a verse. Come on. Go. Wow. You haven't read that before. Or even if you did, you didn't even notice it was there. And so like, wow. It makes sense of Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it anyway, directs it like a watercourse. Come on. The heart of this government is in the hand of God. We have to believe and know that God's got his things in his hand. Amen? So... All of this, through all of this, God was preparing. God was perfecting his plan. God was bringing the seed line till the fullness of time. So listen what Isaiah 45 verse 11 says. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. Now, come on, you go. Man, this is powerful. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the works of my hands. Command ye me. There's a whole message in this verse. Come on, there's a whole message in this verse. Basically from Adam, the next time the sons of God are mentioned is in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. When the sons of God were assembled and God was with them. That's when Satan came in. It wasn't in heaven. It was on earth. Who were the sons of God? Not angels. Angels are never called sons. So this was a thing that happened on earth. Who were the sons of God? The righteous line that came through Seth, who had not sinned. Cain and Abel did not sin. Adam and Eve sinned. But then Cain did sin. He killed Abel. Then they had another seed after their image and in their likeness who had not sinned, Seth. And so there was a righteous line that came. These were the sons of God who took the daughters of men as wives. Angels did not sleep with human women. It was the righteous lineage married the unrighteous line through Cain and corrupted the righteous lineage of men through which God was going to bring out the seed, Christ was an early attempt of the devil to corrupt the seed line. Come on, somebody say amen. I know this is a lot just before Christmas, but this is the last stretch. And then after that, we're going to relax, okay? We'll do short popcorn messages, you know, just but from now. But this is Bible study. It's going to carry you through till January. All right. And so the next time you see Son of God was Jesus. That's why I quoted Luke chapter 1. When the angel came, he should be called the Son of God. But how many of you know Hebrews 2 tells us that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through what he suffered in order to bring many sons 
to glory. So the next time we see sons, we see a generation of sons. So when Peter says, you're a royal priesthood, you know, a holy nation, a chosen generation, you are the chosen generation. What are you? You're a generation of sons. That's why in Isaiah 53 it says, who will declare his generation? Because if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, everyone begat, 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 then comes Jesus. There was no begat. Well, the rest of the New Testament is the begat story. Who did Jesus beget? You and me. The chosen generation. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. Woo! Awesome. So this is what Isaiah starts to prophesy when he's prophesying the new thing that will come. A new thing is not just something fresh that's going to happen in your lives, you know, after COVID. The new thing that Isaiah was prophesying, behold, I would do a new thing, you know. Do you not perceive it? Even now it springs forth. Was the New Testament? Was Jesus coming? That's the new thing. New heaven, new earth, new people, new creation, new city, new everything, new priesthood, new temple. Behold, I'm going to do a new. Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21. Okay. And so he says, this is what God says through the prophet. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask of me things to come concerning my sons. <laughs> that should change your prayer life. Anything concerning sons, he says, ask of me. And then he takes it one step further and he goes, no, 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 I'll tell you what, command me. Command ye me concerning the things pertaining to sons. Even angels are ministering servants sent to serve the heirs, the sons of salvation. And God says, come on, sons, come on, sons, command me concerning this salvation, concerning things that are related to you. This is a good message. Amen. I want you to do some commanding. Amen. You can command healing. You can command provision. You can command authority. And you can command power. You can command breakthrough. Because those are all things related to sons. Amen. So command ye me. And so, so the ministry of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, when he comes, he is God's hand extended. Amen. But in another sense, in another sense, it's not. So I want you to read Isaiah 5, verse 25. Israel has become more rebellious, more idolatrous, more of a harlot. That's why in Revelations it talks about the harlot, the beast, the harlot, the harlot on the beast. The beast is Rome. The harlot is Israel. The false prophet is also Israel because it prophesied false things. That's why even Isaiah says that Israel has become the harlot. It's all there. If you want to interpret Revelation, go and read Isaiah. Hosea marrying a harlot, going to the slave station and marrying a harlot. And God says, marry her and have children with her. It was a prophecy of how God had been with Israel. Yeah. I took you back, I took you back, I took you back. Hosea's whole prophecy, I married a harlot. Yeah. In the place where it says, not loved, not my people, no mercy. Paul says, nine Romans, now you are loved. You have received mercy. You are my people. Yeah. But not by the law anymore, but by Jesus. And so over and over again, it says this. But listen, listen to Isaiah 5.25. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against this people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them. Let me just show you. 
So all the while he says, I've stretched out my hands. Israel, come. He has my hands here. And when God puts out his hands, it's full of provision and power and blessing. I've held out my hands to you. But you would not. You would not. You would not. You played the harlot. You would not. And then he says, all right, you've kindled my anger. Now my hand is turned against you. The NIV says, God's hand is upraised. It's amazing how much communication can happen with a hand. Everybody. (laughs) So much communication. So here's a picture of God and he's like this. My hand is against you. And that's the story leading right into the New Testament. In fact, can I throw something at you? This revelation is not mine. I got this from Annalise. The book of Revelation is the vision story which actually played out in history up till AD 70 of God's hand against Israel, of the annihilation by the Romans, the destruction of the city, and the total eradication of the temple and its worship system. But from the birth of Jesus to AD 70 was a period of 40 years. Not only was it a period of judgment or a period of 40 years, a generation period, but it was a period of the extreme patience. That's the patience that's referred to in Revelations 1, 2 Peter 3. God is patient. So the patience of God in that period, at any time they could have turned, he would have taken them but his hand was against them. It's very interesting. So, did we read the verse? No, we didn't finish reading it. And have smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For, for all this, his anger is not turned away. Isaiah says this, but his hand is stretched out still. You can go to verse 12, 525, 917, 921, 10, 4, 14, 26, 14, 27 of the book of Isaiah, and you will see it says, my hand is stretched out. I will fulfill my purpose with this outstretched hand. It will happen because there's sins that reach the maximum. So the book of Revelation, so the birth of Jesus is highly significant. Paul prophesies it in Hebrews 10, and he says, the whole reason for the body that was prepared for him because he said, sacrifices and offerings I do not want anymore. Jesus said when he was ministry, go and learn what this means. I don't want sacrifice and offering, but I want mercy. So he came to bring mercy instead of sacrifices and offerings, but he said, but a body has been formed for me by the hands of God to fulfill. So the birth of Jesus wasn't just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. His birth signaled In the words of the rest of Hebrews chapter 10, his whole purpose was to take out the old and to bring in the new. All by the hand of God. And so when we continue to have a look at it, his anger is so burned against them that in Isaiah 1.15, God says this to Israel, And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, When you make your prayers, I will not hear, because your hands are full of blood. You see, so when you come going, God, 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 I'm not going to look, I'm not going to listen. It's the end. Your hands are full of blood. That's why when Jesus came and he said, that's why in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem, the city where our Lord was crucified, 
was also called Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt. Jesus said, I will send you more prophets, but you will do to them what you've done to all the prophets. You'll kill them. Your hands are full. That's the martyrs who are under the throne crying to God saying, when, when, when will it happen? He says, your hands are full of blood. You kill the prophets. Jesus told the parable of the owner of the vineyard going to go and get his rent. And he sent person after person. That was the prophets. You kill them. Well, he killed all of them because they were hired. But what if I send my son? Well, they killed him too. And then when Pilate said, let me release him, they said, his blood can be on us. So they were responsible for all the blood of righteous Abel all the way through to Zechariah. God said, I can't anymore. Your hands are full of blood. But let me just connect to you, and then we're finished. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, I mentioned it. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. Listen to this. And all nations will stream to it. That's one of the verses why I believe in worldwide revival. In the last days. Everybody say the last days. Now, you know when the last days were, but let me just show you when the last days were, okay? Bible interpreting Bible, not newspapers and, you know, other things. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, everybody say the last days. Okay, when did they begin? So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, scripture with scripture, I'm asking you almost with tears in my eyes, because of all the people that say the last days is still coming. When did the last days begin? When Jesus came. Is that all right? So when Jesus was born, it was the beginning of the last days. When was, because there's a reference to the last of the last days. When was the last of the last days? Just before the destruction of Jerusalem. That was the last of the second heaven and second earth. Beginning of the third heaven and the third earth, which Peter tells us the home of the righteous. That's for us. Woo! So in the last days, he spoke by his son. Now, what has this got to do with the hand of God? Everything. I'll tell you why. Psalm 98 verses 1 to 4. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He has remembered his mercy and his truth towards the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Why? Because he has revealed his right hand and his holy arm. In the book of Isaiah 59, 16, 63 verses 4 to 5 as well, God said, I was appalled at the sin on the earth. And he was talking about Israel. And he said, I looked and there was no one to do it. So my own right arm, my own right hand has worked salvation for me. In other words, he sent his son Jesus. His son Jesus is the right hand of God. Is that okay? That's why in Revelation 5, John sees the vision and he sees God sitting on the throne. And in the right hand of him, a scroll, which was the word written on the inside and outside. In other words, Jesus was the word become flesh. 
Is it okay? And so Jesus is the right hand of God. So he said, I extended my hand. I extended my arm out to the people that were looking for me or asking for me or whatever. When I said, here I am, here I am. I extended my hand out. And so Jesus is the extended right hand of God. It's interesting that you see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty. Hebrews 1, many other places, Acts 3. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Isn't it interesting as well that when we get born again, that we are raised and we are seated at the right hand of God. See, the right hand of God is a place of power and privilege and perspective. Amen? So we raised up by the right hand of God. There's a sense in which we could even say, Jesus is the right hand of God, and we're the right hand of Jesus. And so Isaiah 63, verses 4 and 5, listen to what Isaiah, right towards the end, says in the book of Isaiah, as he prophesies. He talks about the day of vengeance is in God's heart. The day of vengeance is not for these days. The day of vengeance was not for other nations. What is this day of vengeance that he was talking about? The day of vengeance was in my heart. In Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61 verse 1, he said, I've come to proclaim the year of my favor, the day of my vengeance. Matthew 24 gives, you know, the, you know what everybody talks about, the end of the world. Well, that was the end of the Jewish world passage, not the end of this world. It's parallel you can find in Luke 21. And in Luke 21, when Jesus is describing those events that were going to happen on Jerusalem, he says, this is the vengeance. The day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold me. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation unto me, and in my fury it was upheld. The day... God's hand turned. So even the birth of Jesus, he came to his own. Was through God, in a sense, saying, here. In one sense, he was saying, "My against you, it's going to, you're going to go. But in another sense, to those who wanted, he was still holding out his hand. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night it happened in the garden, the betrayal had more or less taken place. And Jesus starts to quote Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. The stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. But he quoted another verse. Very interesting. You all ready? In Zechariah, this is the verse he's quoting from when he said, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Let me read the verse to you. Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now listen. And I will turn my hand. Most other translations say against. The King James says upon. King James is correct. And I will turn my hand upon my little ones. So in other words, one hand, his hand was out. The disciples found the extended hand of God, the mercy. But in another sense, his hand was out in judgment against Israel. But on the night that the shepherd was struck and he gave his life, God said, I'm turning my hand onto my little ones. The birth of Jesus turned the hand of God. Now, to whoever will, to the Lord may come. 
We see that Jesus is the right hand of God. We're seated at his right hand. Psalm 80 verse 17 says this, another one that you need to underline and mark and memorize. Let your hand rest on the man of your right hand. Let your hand rest on the man of your right hand. Come on, church, I just said we're seated at the right hand. Let your hand rest on the man of your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. And so now for us as Christians, the hand of God is not against us. It is forever reached out to us. But more than that, he's included us in himself. There's a sense which we are the right hand of Christ. But there's another sense in which the hand of God rests upon us. Jesus had an amazing time for children. They featured much in his analogies in Luke 18. When they were arguing about who's the greatest, he brings a child. He says, the kingdom is like this. When the disciples tried to stop him, he says, don't stop the children. Come. He laid his hands on them and blessed them. Come on. His hand is upon us, his children. Even more so, Isaiah prophesies to those people that will receive his glory, those people that he's called out, he says, see, I've engraven you, I've engraved you in the palm of my hand. <laughs> Come on, just, just go, ooh, ah, oh, yeah, I've engraved you upon the palm of my hand. How many of you know Jesus read the Bible? So he says in John 10, 28, I've given them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand, because we're engraven in his hand. Amen? So Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And not only that, but over and over, God says it in Isaiah 66 verse 14. When he talks about the salvation that is coming, he said, When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. So the hand of the Lord. Isn't it amazing that we come and like servants, the Bible tells us in Psalms, our eyes are on the hand of the master, the one who blesses, protects, and provides, the one that is with us. And then in closing, last, I'm just going to mention it. In Ezekiel, prophet to the exiles. He has these visions of God. He sees the valley of dry bones. He sees the river, you know. But he was an exile. He was with them. They saw other things. They couldn't even sing the Lord's song in a strange land when they sat down by the rivers of Babylon. Ezekiel sees the river that is increasing in depth that you cannot cross the river of the Spirit. He sees the glory of God. He sees all of these things. But it tells us, I think, in the first couple of chapters about his encounters with God when he sees the glory of God and he sees wheel within wheel and wings and all of these things. One of the things that happened to him repeatedly was, he says, and the hand of the Lord came upon me. And the hand of the Lord was upon me. And the strong hand of God was upon me. And it's another way of saying the anointing. Another way of saying his presence. Amen? So you are engraven in his hand. You are kept in his hand and none shall pluck you out. Your salvation is not so fragile that you could lose it because three days you didn't read your Bible and over Christmas you hardly prayed. 
And when you come back in January, you're all backslidden, and I'm going to preach awesome services, and I'm going to have massive altar calls. And everybody came to the front. Your salvation, you have eternal life. You're in his hand. The hand of God is upon the man of his right hand in power and blessing. So concerning his sons, he says, ask me concerning yourselves. Command me concerning yourselves because I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In fact, more than that, the strong hand, the strong hand of the Lord is upon you. His hand is always like this to us in Christ. Always. Amen. And now we are his hands extended to a lost and dying world. Because no longer is his hand like that. Because Jesus took all of his judgment, uh, all of the world's judgment, all of the punishment for sin. And so now to a whole world, God's hand is like this. If they would take his hand. So I declare that God has raised his hand. And he has sworn by himself in which, by the immutability of two things, his own nature in which he cannot lie, and with a promise. And I sum it up like this. At the whole New Testament, he says, I bless you. I bless you with upraised hand. And I speak over you the fact that his hand is held out to you constantly and extended to you. More than that, you are the man, the woman of his right hand, and he's laid his righteous right hand upon you and he will always uphold you he will always guide you he will always lead you it is the lord who is guiding you continually and leading you as the good shepherd that was struck you shall not want you shall not be in any lack he shall lead you in paths of righteousness beside quiet waters green pastures though you are going through the valley of the shadow of death you shall fear no evil because the lord is with you the hand of God in the New Testament is the shepherd's rod and staff. He will guide you. He will correct you. He will lead you. He will bless you. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He will anoint your head with oil. Your cup will continue to overflow. You shall lack nothing. And may this Christmas be blessed. May it be special. May it be fulfilled. May it be supernatural in every way. May you experience the peace and the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. May your body perfected. May your wallets be perfected. May you receive the touch of God in every area of your life. May it be a Christmas like never before in every way in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I declare that in this process of blessing, in the Hebrew terminology, I'm placing you under the hand of God. And so I put you under the hand of the Lord, blessed over this festive season in Jesus' name.